Please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. We'll be looking at the whole psalm this morning. Theme of the morning is submit. It's one of your favorite words, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of those words that yeah, just makes you all these warm associations. I don't really like the word personally. I hear the word submit, and there's something inside me that I just kind of instinctively kind of dig in my heels and resist. And I know where that comes from. You know where that comes from? Talked about it briefly last week. We took a, a short amount of our time walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, and they were finding all of their joy and safety in living in submission to God's will in their lives. And then Satan came along and he said, you know, if you really want to be happy, if you really want to be fulfilled and know what life is all about, all that you've got to do is cast off God's authority. You can be like God. You can be in charge. And there's something inside of each of us that says, yes, if only we never had to answer to anyone, if only we could just run our own lives and we didn't have to obey anyone else or listen to their direction, that's when we would really, really be happy. It's a lie, of course. It doesn't work that way. I found a great quote a few years ago by a man named Phillips Brooks. He said, no man in this world attains to freedom from any slavery except by entrance into some higher servitude. There is no such thing as an entirely free man conceivable. We're created and so we're what's called contingent beings. We are dependent on someone else. Even for the breath that you take today, your life was given to you, your body was given to you, all of your circumstances were given to you. And so if we really want to experience freedom, what we've got to do is we've got to put ourselves back under the authority of God. See, all that Adam and Eve did when they threw off God's authority is they exchanged a good and benevolent sovereign or master in their lives for one who was cruel and who wanted to crush them and destroy them. And so one of the great paradoxes of life is, as we choose to put ourselves under submission to God, that's where we find joy and happiness and fulfillment. Psalm chapter 2 actually builds to that point. It's a beautiful psalm. Uh, It's beautifully constructed. There are four movements. There are four different people or groups of people that are going to speak. And it's going to move from rebellion to submission. Rebels upon the earth, kings will take their stand against God, and then God will speak. And then God will commission his servant, his Messiah, his king to speak. And then finally the psalmist will say, now what's the lesson to be learned from all of this? And it is that joy and safety and fulfillment are found in submission to God. Let's take these movements one at a time. We're going to begin in chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read together the first three verses. Why are the nations in an uproar? And the peoples devising a vain thing, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't know the precise setting of Psalm chapter 2. We don't know when it happened in Israel's history. What we do know is that Israel used this as a coronation psalm. When a new king was coming into power, they would gather all the people together and they would repeat this psalm. They may have done it as a drama, four different groups speaking out, or possibly uh, it may have just been sung as a song, the congregation singing it to one another. What we do know is that in the ancient Near Eastern setting, when one king was leaving and a new king was coming in, it was a national crisis. And when we have our elections, it's usually pretty peaceful, right? We don't 
We don't think national crisis, unless your candidate didn't win. Then you oh, but you know, that's just kind of dramatic. We're not going to have uh, rioting in the streets, most likely. We're not going to have war. We're not going to have the Canadians attacking us, right? We're pretty safe. But in Israel, as one king is going out and another is coming in, it may be that the nations around them say, all right, now is the time to take advantage of this transition And we're going to go in and attack them, the Edomites or the Egyptians or the Babylonians. Or maybe there would be nations that were in subjection to Israel and they say, we're not going to pay tribute any longer. So as Psalm chapter 2 begins, the nation of Israel is actually entering into a period that could become a national crisis for them. And the thing that I want you to notice here in chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is that it's a conspiracy Let's read this again. It says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together. Or another translation says, They form a united front. The basic orientation of the world is against God. And sometimes we look out upon our world and things seem to be quiet and in order. And it seems that even in some areas, life is getting better and improvements are being made. But the fact of the matter is the world hates God. And they may do that in in a quiet rebellion or it may be an outright rebellion, but there is a conspiracy against God. And as Israel moves into this transition period, they begin to feel the tension that that conspiracy may destroy their life. But then God speaks. Look with me in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. God speaks. God speaks to his nation. And remember, this psalm is a coronation psalm, reminded Israel in a time of potential national crisis that God is actually in control. God says, I've already installed my king. I've chosen who's going to rule and to reign. It's my Messiah or my anointed one. God says, I am in control. As the nations around them begin to rise up in rebellion, God's not sitting in heaven saying, oh no, it's a conspiracy against me. And if enough of them align against me, boy, I'm in big trouble. No, God doesn't say that, does he? God's not worrying, he's not fretful, he's not anxious. But he is angry. Let's look at this again. It says, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. Uh, that's a little troublesome to me. I don't know if, if that bothers you at all. I don't, I don't spend lots of my quiet times meditating upon the anger of God. In fact, this is so troublesome. Back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, liberal theologians said, you know, that, that God in the Old Testament, he just can't be true. Because he's not like Jesus. So all of that must be myth. It doesn't portray God as he truly was. That's just the myth of an ancient people trying to understand a whimsical God. That's not God. Is that true? I want you to think back of, on Isaiah's vision. Remember he sees God in his temple. He comes into the presence of God. And as he looks up, he sees God high and exalted. And what does he say? Angry, angry, angry. That's what he says. There you go. He says, holy, holy, holy. Anger's not an essential attribute of the personality of God, but holiness is. Holiness means that God is entirely, morally, 
perfect, and he is completely set apart. He is absolutely and utterly sinless. He cannot even look upon it. So when he does see sin in his creation, it makes him angry. It's not that anger is an essential attribute of God. It's that holiness is an essential attribute of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory or his personality. And when there is sin or rebellion, resistance against his fundamental personality of holiness, then God becomes angry because God must react to sin and he must punish sin. That is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God looks down upon your life and my life and he sees sin. But as he looks down upon my life and he sees sin and he's going to have to punish that sin, I have an opportunity to step inside of the protection of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, God poured out all of his anger and all of his wrath upon my sin and your sin into Jesus Christ. That's why Christ died. It was a punishment for my sin. So the moment that I believe in Jesus Christ and say, God, thank you for Christ. Let him be my shelter. Let him be my protection. God's wrath is poured out upon Christ and I don't have to pay that penalty. That's the beauty of the gospel. You can't earn that. You don't deserve that. I don't deserve it. But God gives it to us freely. He says, if you are in Christ, then you're safe. And that is why God gave us Jesus Christ, because he longs to be gracious to us. He longs to be compassionate toward us. And so he gave us Jesus Christ. But don't ever be mistaken, God hates sin. And he has to hate sin because it's a part of his nature that he is holy. And one of the sins that God hates most is he hates rebellion. He hates, he hates a, a heart that is hard toward his authority. I remember that story in uh, 1 Samuel where Saul is waiting for Samuel to come and offer a sacrifice and the Philistine army is surrounding him and his army is beginning to dissipate. All, all the Israelites are beginning to, to leave and Saul is getting nervous and he's getting anxious and he's waiting day after day and it doesn't seem like Samuel's come. So he decides that he'll take upon himself the right of the priest and he offers the sacrifice himself and as soon as he offers the sacrifice, what happens? Samuel walks into camp. Samuel goes, smells like sacrifice is just offered here. He goes, well, I had to. Because the people were leaving me, and so I just, I forced myself to do this. And Samuel says, you don't understand. Insubordination, he says, that's like divination or consulting mediums. That's how God feels about it. Rebellion of your heart is like idolatry, Saul. Because a heart that is in submission to God demonstrates the root of character, the root of, of, of a personality that is soft toward the Lord. The very, the very essence of our struggle with ourselves is a heart that does not want to submit. That's the first sin. That's the first sin. And so when God sees that first sin, so to speak, cropping up within us, and we're saying, no, no, no. God does not like that at all. Another story that really illustrates this well, uh, in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 16. Remember the sons of Korah? That's a rough story. Um, Bible's full of those. Korah gathers some of his brothers and his companions, all leaders in the nation of Israel, and they go to Moses and Aaron and say, who, who made you the boss? Look, 
All the congregation is holy. We all have equal authority. You shouldn't be lording your authority over us. And they rebel against Moses' authority and Aaron's authority. And then God speaks. So let's put a little test together. Get all of your censers, fill them with incense, bring them before the Lord, and the one whose offering I accept, that will be the one who I have appointed as authority, who represents me, and when you rebel against that person, you're rebelling against my authority. So let's put a little test together. Remember what happens? Sons of Korah gather together, and God accepts Aaron's incense, and then to the rest of them, ground opens up, swallows them alive, and everything they own. And then the ground comes back together. Wow. And all the nation of Israel runs. (laughs) Like, whoa. Now, I use that illustration for a couple reasons. One, because it's shocking. That's a really uncomfortable story. Second reason is, strangely enough, that has become one of my son's favorite stories. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I've asked him, why is that? Why? Buddy, why, you know, because it's a really weird thing. We went for several months where night after night I'd say, well, you know, what do you, what do you want to read? You know, because he'd pick out his story. He'd say, let's do Sons of Korah. <laughs> Daddy, let's read Sons of Korah again. So, I mean, it's night after night after night after night. Sons of Korah. And, Buddy, why do you like that story? He couldn't really tell me why he liked that story. And I want to, and I want to tell you, seriously, it's not like Tristy and I every night are saying to ourselves, hey, let's read him Sons of Korah again. <laughs> But there is something in my heart that is, is saying, I hope that he sees the point of this. <laughs> that God loves a soft heart. God loves a soft heart. And we pray for our children constantly. This, this uh, fundamental issue in their life would be solved. That they could joyfully submit to God the Father. They could say, God, in you, under the protection of your power and authority in my life, it's safe, it's secure, it's joyful. God, let them find life and hope and peace in submission to you. We pray that they would learn those lessons easily. So if you've lived a few years on the earth, you know that God's going to come after us on that lesson over and over and over again. And he says to us always, would you learn it the easy way, please, not the hard way, but you're going to learn this lesson. God is the sovereign over all the universe. He is the sovereign. He's the creator and life is found in him. In the third movement, God's Messiah speaks. God's son proclaims what God has told him. Look at chapter 2 and verse 7. Notice, remember, this is the king speaking, God's earthly king, his ruler. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. God the Father has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Verse 7 again, he says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Uh, This is a a, a reflection of the covenant that was given to David. If you want to go back later today and read that, it's 2 Samuel chapter 7. Read Psalm chapter 89. That was an eternal covenant. God promised David, one of your children is going to sit on the throne forever and ever and ever. But as each new king was installed, they would repeat the terms of this covenant. They would go back. And so it was always contemporary. Today, if you hear my voice, today I am your father. I have become your father and you have become my son. There was a relationship of intimacy. There was a covenant renewal that would go on. 
And what would happen in this covenant renewal is first that the king himself would submit himself to God. He would, he would receive a personal copy of the law of Moses. Because remember, all the kings were still under the law of Moses. He was to govern under the law of Moses and lead the people to live righteously under the law of Moses before God. So he would get his own personal copy and he would pledge his fidelity to God. Because really the whole nation was only safe if the king was leading them into submission to God. So he would pledge his fidelity to the covenant. Then a crown would be placed upon his head. Then he would be anointed and he would become Messiah. Anointed one, Mashiach. And he would be declared on that day the son of God. It was a title of honor. It showed that it was a family. This wasn't just a a corporation or an organization, but God ruled as father over his children, Israel, and the king was the son. It also showed that the son was in submission to the father. The son operated and ruled in submission. He wasn't in charge of the whole nation. And so the nation only had hope if the king was living in submission to the father. Three things I want you to see in this section here. First is that it's a unique relationship. It's a family relationship. The second is that his inheritance is it's extensive. It's not just the nation of Israel. Look at verse 8. It says, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. It was God's intention that the king of Israel would rule over all the earth because all the earth belonged to God. All the earth was his possession. He wanted his king to rule from Jerusalem over all the earth. And if his king was perfectly related to him, then he could ask and God would expand the borders of his authority. Third, he had absolute power. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is a very common image for an Israelite because uh, ancient Near Eastern kings, as they came to power, they would have pottery made and on the pottery would be inscribed the names of all their enemies. Then they would take these, this pottery into the the temple of their God, and they would take a rod and they would smash it before their God, symbolizing that their God had given them power over their enemies. So it's a very common image. And for the Israelite king, God says, I will take them like earthenware and you will shatter them. You will rule over all the earth. Did this ever happen? No, this ideal never came to pass. Every king that was, was enthroned for Israel, the Israelites looked at this king and said, is he the one? Is he the answer to our hopes and prayers, the promises God made to us in the Davidic covenant? Will he be the one? And sometimes there were some good kings, but they still left the high places and there was idolatry. Or they started out good and then they faded at the end. But most of the kings were evil. Israel's history was a, was a, a bad history. Most of the time they had kings that were leading them astray. And so they were hoping and hoping and waiting. But ultimately, God's anger towards sin became so great that he took the northern kingdom off of the land of Israel. And then the southern kingdom followed in that same idolatry and they were removed from the land of Israel. And while the people are off in exile, God spoke to them a word of hope and he said, I'm going to give you a new covenant. We're going to start again. And when I give you that new covenant, I'm going to bring you back onto the land. And I'm going to bless you on the land. I'm going to give you protection from all your enemies. And I'm going to give you a king. David is going to return as a prince. And when he does, he will give you safety and security and he will give you prosperity. We're going to start again. 
The people came back onto the land, but they never had a king. And they were waiting, and they were waiting, and waiting for a king, but they always lived under subjection to nations around them. And then Jesus Christ came on the scene, and what did he say? He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And people lined up to follow him. People lined up to follow him. Disciples were following him round about, everywhere that he went preaching and teaching. Some of them were probably standing there when Jesus was baptized and God spoke out of heaven. And what did he say? This is my son. He's the one. And when Jesus went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John were there with him. And Peter was so amazed, he said, this is wonderful. We've got three equals here, Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Let's make three tabernacles. And God spoke and he said, no, this is my son. This one, just this one. And Paul says when God raised Jesus from the dead, he declared with power that this is the Son of God. And one day he's going to come back. John tells us over and over and over again in the book of Revelation that the Son will return and he will establish God's rule and reign over all of the earth. And so now if you are wise, what do you do? You bend the knee. You say, I will find life in submission to God's Son. In the last section, the psalmist speaks, and he says, be wise. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment, or act wisely. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun, or literally kiss the sun. Bow before the sun. Kiss the sun. Be in submission to him. That he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. And it ends with the word of hope. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. I remember reading one time that there is no refuge from God, there is only refuge in God. And that's why he gave us Jesus. Because of his love toward humanity and his compassion toward us, he says, come into Jesus and be safe. Two applications I want to give you this morning from this psalm. The first is that our great calling in life is to announce to the world that Jesus Christ is returning, that he is the king, and that they can find life in submission to him. That's what we study in Philippians. Remember last semester, we were going through Philippians. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Whether you're in heaven or on earth, you're going to bow before Jesus Christ. It is our calling in life to announce to the neighbors around us that Jesus Christ is Lord and that life is found in him. Second application is this. The best way that we do that is when we live our lives in submission to Jesus. When we model a heart that finds its joy and peace and fulfillment, not in finding our own way, but in bending the knee before Jesus. So this morning we are going to celebrate communion. And as we're served the elements, what I'd like for us to do is just take a few moments, bow your head before the Lord and resubmit your own life. So God, I I thank you for sending your son, Jesus. Uh, I surrender all. He's in charge and I submit. Do men come forward and serve us? Uh, Wait till everyone's served and then we'll take the elements together. Book of Hebrews.
Hebrews, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Bread represents the body of Christ and his physical sufferings on behalf of our sin. Let's take the bread together. The cup represents the blood of Jesus Christ poured out as a payment for our sins. Let's take the cup together. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that reminder that you have acted to protect us from the consequences of our sins. Father, we we love you. We thank you that we can find life and hope and safety in you. We once again lay our lives before you.